Thank you for joining me. My name is Nadine Johns Alcock and I'm one of the trio behind Cutting Through the Noise podcast with Stephanie Mason and Hayley Mears. We are going to guide you through 2023 and beyond with some great business information on how you can navigate the landscape. Joining me today, we have Kim Cray. Now, if you've not heard of Kim Cray before, let me tell you, she is the manager's mentor. Kim Cray really knows the mindset, skills and strategies required to help salon managers get the best performance from their teams. She can see the common roadblocks from frontline managers and what they face in influencing their staff's behaviour and performance and has helped thousands of business owners, managers and franchisees, and I'd say freelancers too, learn what it takes to truly engage their people, to turbocharge their results, and to build cultures of excellence. Now, I do have to confess, I've known Kim for quite some time and I've always been really intrigued as to you know, what happened in her life. What did it take to turn her from a hairdresser on the salon floor to an incredible leader that's able to mentor others? So today we're gonna to dive into leadership, but welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thanks Nadine for having me, great to be here. Thank you. So for those who don't know you yet, can you share with us who you are and what support you offer leaders in the hairdressing industry? I guess I'm a bit of an anomaly in the hair industry in that I am a hairdresser with a business degree. So, um, so my head works a little bit differently. So I am a hairdresser of almost 40 years. It'll be 40 years next year. Um, but very early I was drawn to management um, and it's I just found my niche in that area. But today really I do a number of things. I either work with business owners, so individual salon owners in the industry who are incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking, but don't understand why they're not getting the financial returns that they wanted. Secondly, I do a lot of work developing leaders. That's an absolute passion of mine. So again, business owners, managers, emerging leaders, people who want to lead one day, just really showing them what it takes to get very specific results through their people in a really positive way. Um, and then lastly, I also do a lot of work within bigger groups. So chains, groups, franchises, that kind of thing, working closely with them to embed structure, build competencies at all levels of their organisation, because that is my background, I guess, so that comes fairly naturally. So that's pretty much it, depending on the day. Yeah, it's a very interesting career that you've forged for yourself. I guess, you know, I find it particularly intriguing because as I travel around to salons all around the world, I do hear a lot of, you know, hairdressers don't really know much about business or it's just not what we're good at. We should focus on other things. I'm really interested in the fact that you are a hairdresser and you're obviously very competent. So I want to understand, you know, what were the key things that got you there so that we can learn from them as well? So let's start at the beginning though, Kim. Where did you grow up and how did this impact your decision to become a hairdresser? Well, I grew up in Brisbane, but from my early high school years, so just turned 13, I think it was, my family 
um, moved to Harvey Bay. And let me put on the record, I was not happy about it. <laughs> so I ended up, you know, moving away from my friend base, from school that I loved, and from a future that I pretty much had all planned out. And here I was in a regional town, which back then uh, was sleepy. Like there was not even traffic lights in this town. So um, that had an enormous impact on my entry into the hair industry because honestly, I think had I stayed in Brisbane and had that life unfolded, I would have gone down probably an academic path, a scientific path. So it was being in a regional area and just through the high school program, the work experience program, you know, in salons, um, then that led to a little part-time job in a salon, which I loved. But honestly, I still didn't consider that hairdressing would be my career at that stage. And it all came to a point where I think the day or so before I finished school, I got a phone call from my employer saying, I've got wonderful news. You know, I'd like to offer you an apprenticeship. And uh, I was a bit gobsmacked because I hadn't considered it. My mum thought it was a fantastic idea. I thought I was heading off to university. She clearly didn't. <laughs> um, so we struck a deal in that I would do the probationary period and give it a go. And if I liked it, I would stay. And that's what my mum assumed would happen. Um, and if I didn't like it, I would go on to continue studying. And that's what I assumed would happen. But as you can see, I really enjoyed it. I love the people aspect. I was really drawn to the, the connection with people, I think, um, and loved it. But I did feel that as the years went on, I did look to continue stretching, continue learning, just to kind of feed that part of my brain. So you just talked about how much you love human connection. What did becoming a hairdresser teach you about connection and how have you taken that into your life now? I think that's changed a lot over the years. In my early years, it was about making people happy, making sure clients were happy, you know, and working nicely with others as a team. But looking back after decades, it's a whole new realisation for me. To me, the hair, whilst I love it, is the cover for what we really do. So we are lifting people in a lot of way. We have a human in our chair who is looking to us to help them find confidence, to help them find the way they want to just show themselves to the world, portray the image they want to portray. And there's a lot of trust involved in that. So there's a lot of vulnerability, there's a lot of responsibility now. And I look at that in a whole new way. And one other aspect, I guess, another, the flip side of that too, is when I became an employer, fast forward a number of years, probably my second business, I had a realisation that building that team, because that grew very quickly from two of us to, in the end, 17 of us, and there was a moment where I realised, oh, wow, this is not about hair at all. That's just how we play. I'm here to grow people. Yeah, that's a really interesting comment that you make. And particularly right now where there is a polarisation in the industry, so the traditional salon models being called into question, you know, stylists might be working on their own. And I can feel a real beat out there that stylists are missing being not just one-on-one -on -one with their client, but also part of a salon team. So human connection is super important. Absolutely. So at this time of your life, you're enjoying the human connection, you're growing teams and you're finding your real purpose, but what was missing? 
So if that phase when I was still in Harvey Bay, the big city opportunities, I think. And honestly, I think I looked around and, you know, whilst I was enjoying learning um, and it was fun, um, honestly, I looked around and saw my peers married with children at 21 and I thought, that is not me. No. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and it's, it's fascinating because I look back now and think, that was crazy. Like, that was so young. But... I was, you know, 17 in a few months. I'd just got my license. I bought my car and off I went. I applied for a job with a big group. Um, I got it, packed my car and off I went by myself to Brisbane. And uh, the rest is history. So it was it was a crazy time, but it was a time filled with just vertical growth and massive opportunity, but it was the making of me, I think. So looking back, would I let us, my 17-year-old daughter, if I had one, do that? Probably not. But there yeah. How do you think you made it spell at that time? <laughs> and, and did that have any impact on what your choices were? I think I had always been quite independent. I had actually left home, I should say, probably, I don't know, six or nine months earlier. So I moved out at uh, 16 uh, because that's what you did back then. It was all about being independent. Yeah. We are working, etc. So moved in with a few friends, um, had some fun and uh, small town, get around town on a bicycle. Um, but I think that, sure, there was an element of fear. I think my mum's got used to that through the years. She just takes a deep breath and crosses her fingers and, you know, hopes it's going to be okay and checks in. But um, I think they could see I was pretty determined. I had a great opportunity work-wise. Initially, when I came to Brisbane, I moved in with uh, grandparents for about three months and then moved into the sort of share house scene for many years. So she knew I'd be okay and I just was a bit of a steamroller, I think, off I went on a mission. Yeah, I'm sensing a bit of a theme already that you take fear and grab it and turn it into focus. So we might come back to that a little bit later, but we'll stay where we are at the moment. So you're on your way, you're back in Brisbane by this stage, and then you get this strange idea that you might go to university. Why? What happened there? So that was many years later. So I had, it was, so I was back in Brisbane when I was 17. I started my degree at 39. So somewhere in the middle there, I think I'd always assumed that I would do it because I knew I had the ability to do it. I'll never forget my favourite teacher on my last day of school, um, you know, looked at me and said, well, I see you at, I think it was a graduation ceremony. And I said, no, I've got, you know, I've got this job. And the look on his face was, oh, you're giving up. Yeah. Now that hit me, right? Yeah. Um, now, and I think, you know, there is a, I guess, a perception or there has been out there around like, how people categorise the hair industry. But, you know, for me, I think it stuck with me. And I think there was unfinished business. I needed to just scratch that itch. I just assumed that I would always do it. Mm -hmm. The way that it happened is the TV was on. I happened to see an ad for a university and it popped into my head, when are you going to do this? And I thought about it and thought, I haven't got time to do this. And I thought, well, you're 39. This is going to take, you know, six years or so part-time. Will you be okay if you don't do this? And instantly I knew no way absolutely not I'll always regret that so I just walked to the computer and I enrolled and made it happen and it was crazy I was running two businesses working six days a week but I made it happen I didn't have a weekend I think for about six and a half years but absolutely worth every single minute of it for me 
Yeah, another great example of you grabbing hold of the fear and turning it into focus, which... And I think, look, there's a little bit of... I, I don't want to get to the end of this and feel like I've still got petrol in the tank or mm. feel like I didn't go for it, mm. right? Um, and once I jump, there's no way that I'm not going to do it. I've, I've, failure is not an option. <laughs> no, definitely not with you. And where does that come from? Where does this really strong, hard work ethic, is it a fear of failing or is there something else driving you? Look, I mean, quite possibly. I also, I probably on a, on a personal note, maybe, and I'm only surmising, but um, I come from fairly independent stock. My, I lost my dad when I was five, even though I did have a stepdad and you know, who's been with me, you know, for many years since, there was always a sense from my mum that I need to make sure you're going to be okay on your own. Mm. Um, so from when I was five and six, my mum was teaching me to cook basic things and iron um, because she'd experienced, she lost um, her mum and her husband within six weeks of each mm. other with a young family. Um, I look back now and have no idea how on earth she managed mm. that. That's incredible. Yeah. But I think I picked up that you're going to have to survive out there, kiddo, kind of yeah. feeling. Um, and so I think it was just, was it fear? I don't know. It was just, am I going to be okay? Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. Um, maybe as I got older, it turned into, you know, maybe on some level looking for acknowledgement. Like I probably viewed success in terms of I'm enough now, I'm okay now. Because I think when something like that happens to your family, when, you know, when you're impacted in that way, um, you you realise you're different. People treat you differently. Mm. And so as a five-year-old, your brain processes that as, oh, there's something wrong with us, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, we're, we're a little bit damaged, right? Um, and who knows, maybe that stuck. Maybe it was, I'm going to do this, you know? And do you think, has that transformed the way you deal with others so when you're taking people and turning them into great leaders which you've proved time and time again that you excel at are you able to just identify that vulnerability and oh. find the fear and help them like is that part of your success 100 percent now now my early years because I was managing from when I was 18 and honestly I think when I look back on those years I think I might have been a bit of a steamroller I think I was really determined to I was going to get the result and that was it um but look the benefit that comes with a bit of life and a lot yeah. of you know being knocked around and you know life experience is I have such a sense of compassion now interestingly I've I have developed very clear boundaries but I have much more compassion for people mm -hmm. you know I I no longer will look at someone and maybe judge where they're at mm -hmm. you know or, oh, they're still stuck there I just think I get it I feel it I've been there mm -hmm. that's just where you're at in your journey and I wish you the best and sometimes that means we're not the right fit and you know I can wish them well and walk away yeah so do you think that kind of vulnerability that you show in those moments and that compassion, is, is that what makes you a good leader or is that what makes a person a good leader or should a leader always lead by example and be the ideal version of themselves? Look, I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. I think mm -hmm. good leadership requires, requires real authenticity because 
especially if you're going into a tough time. So if we look back maybe, say, at the beginning of COVID and everything was tumultuous, we weren't sure, are we closing? Is there, you know, staff are thinking, do I even have a job? Mm. In times like that, they don't want to see perfect polished. They mm. want to see someone who acknowledges what's going on, mm. right, and who says, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I can promise you this, mm. right? Um I will do everything I can to find the opportunity. I'll make sure I do the right thing by you. Like, I don't think people need to have a perfect guaranteed scenario. They need to trust you and mm -hmm. back you. Mm -hmm. And they'll only do that when you've shown that under pressure, you walk the talk. And yeah. that they'll see in an instant whether you really have their back or whether at the first sign of trouble, whoop, you know, you cut and run. You're out. Mm. So what do you define, like, the difference between a manager and a leader? I see lots of this stuff on places like LinkedIn and it's not, you know, it's pretty hollow. So if someone's trying to transition from a stylist on the floor into salon manager and then to become a really strong leader, what are the differences? Look, I don't get too hung up either in the difference between a manager and a leader. I think sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. Yeah. Um, if we want to look at them as very separate, I would say uh, a manager is often very task-focused, mm -hmm. get the job done. Mm -hmm. They're you know, maybe a little more authoritarian. There are rules. People are to be controlled and manage that kind of thing. A leader is someone who at their heart, values the people they have and genuinely wants to see them grow and excel. Now, that doesn't mean that they're a doormat by any means, mm. right? Um, but it means they take absolute delight in seeing other people hit milestones and, you know, achieve things and overcome things. Mm. I don't think you're ever going to be a great leader unless you really enjoy your people. Mm. You have to really... I mean, you might be employing or managing personalities that aren't your natural kind of flavor, shall we yeah. say, and that's part of the deal. Yeah. Um, but you, you've, got to, you've got to want what's best, you know, for them. And just in terms of how you make that transition, I actually think we're going to step into our first salon management role in that manager headspace. Mm. I've got things to do, right? Yes, You're yes. going to do the opening task and the closing task and that's how it's going to be. And hopefully we as we live that maybe for a few years and we see the result of that and, you know, we start to hopefully find our humanity in there mm. um, and we realise that, again, this is about people. But it's a hard transition because they've got to go usually from being a workmate or a buddy or a peer on a similar level to all of a sudden being the manager, the boss, and that's not an easy transition to make. It's one of the main things that I often work on in terms of mindset. How do I deal with that? And if they don't make that transition, they'll never lead successfully. You've often got to define how this is going to move forward for those people. Yeah, I can really relate to this. So as a salon owner, you know, there's a lot of talk on the salon floor about everyone being treated equally, but that kind of doesn't always work someone does have to step up and someone does have to take charge and lead and we're also dealing with unprecedented staff shortages at the moment when I look around and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this whether you feel that particularly young stylists really are looking for a leader looking for someone to mentor them and a lot of them aren't really getting that in salon what do you think 100 percent. yeah I think on the equality thing I think where I would draw the line there is absolutely everyone on my team, if they are all in and they are 
you know, meeting the expectations in terms of attitude and behaviour and, you know, and giving me their best, then in return for that, their voice needs to be heard. They yeah. have a say um, in, you know, meetings, if a decision has to be made, bring that to the team. However, the people on your team are going to have different levels of experience. So there's no way that I'm going to um, maybe be guided or allow my, my emerging stylist, who's been in the industry a little while, to make a decision around something that's going to impact my business financially enormously as the owner, the buck stops with me, that's my money, that's my name on the door. I absolutely want to understand how my people see it, how they think it's going to affect them, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm going to take all of that into consideration and make my decision, mm. right? So I'm not asking for permission from my staff. They will feel absolutely, you know, part of the discussion. And if I but I also understand that they won't have all the pieces of the puzzle from their perspective at this point. I will then take the time to explain as much as possible. But even if they don't fully understand why yet from their level of development, we may need to go anyway. Mm, yeah, of course. And this, I think, relates back to the idea of being firm but fair. Mm, yeah. 100%. So, and, and what does that mean? You know, Because how do we know what that looks like if we have never seen it modelled for us? But to me, it's about the firm part. That comes from a really clear internal compass. Mm. It comes from, you know, what's important to me? What are my values? How do I want to lead? What impact do I want to have? And if that is my compass or my true north and I make decisions from that, then I can set expectations for my team to say, this is how we play here, mm. right? Outside of work, as long as it doesn't impact the business, mm. knock yourself out, right? But when we come together here, here's the rules of the game. This is how we play it, mm. right? Um, now, with the firm but fair, um, clear boundaries. Everybody needs to know what's expected of them. You don't want to leave them guessing. But at the end of the day, I can wish someone the very best and want the very best genuinely for them and understand that it may not be with me. Mm, yeah. So I can encourage them and support them and maybe let them go mm. if what I need from them isn't what they're prepared to give and we're just on different buses. <laughs> and you've been through this yourself, right? So you've been through the phase of having a salon and 17 staff and building businesses. And then you decided that maybe this wasn't for you and you needed to get on a different bus. So how did you make that transition from being a salon owner and manager to then working with others to helping support them in their business to grow? So that started, I think, in my early 20s, one of my role, I had a national role um, with uh, it was a it was a partnership between a major product company and a big franchise in the industry, and so my role was to to be placed within that salon franchise and be responsible for the salon division nationally, mm -hmm. 118 outlets. So, and I was you know building the systems, training the people, building culture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, because I guess that was a natural extension of my early management roles. Um, I was in a coaching capacity anyway because I was working with business owners and competent business owners, ex-state bank, you know, state managers of banks and things like that, very competent but new to this industry. Mm -hmm. So I had that background of teaching competent business people how to operate profitably in the hair industry. Mm -hmm. um, and so that had been a theme throughout my life. 
going into business for myself, that was the anomaly. Like yeah. that was the left turn that really uh, threw a curveball for me. Um, and so it was after my second business that um, I ended up moving into coaching. And that was because toward the end of my first business, I had actually engaged a coach um, who then moved me, she moved away, moved me to the wonderful Faye Murray. Mm -hmm. And I worked a little bit with Faye through my second business as that was growing really rapidly. And it was actually Faye who said to me, I'm busy, you could, you could do this, mm. would you consider? Um, and then I juggled it for a little while and then I got a big offer on that second business and the rest is history. Yeah, great. So it sounds like you said yes, even though you might have been a little bit scared at the time, I imagine. I mean, I can see your face right now. The listeners can't. But what was that decision like for you? There was a lot of uncertainty, but you're right. I guess if I look back at some of the big career decisions I've made, there's a just jump, work the details out later. Now, that's I even hear myself saying that and I cringe a little bit because I would say to this point in my life, I've been the very conservative mm. person, particularly financially, right? Mm. I guess, you know, I've had to work from nothing and build. Um, and when you start businesses, we all do it on nothing, right? So there's those early years where, you know, you're worrying the night before how you're going to make wages the next day, you'll pay the rent, you've got all of those stresses. Um, until you build some assets or you know, some wealth behind you. Um, but the biggest payoffs that I've ever had in my career were when I absolutely stared down the barrel and thought, how am I going to make this work? And maybe I initially flinched. There's a great story about my second business, how that happened. And that was an example of where I looked at it and went, no way, how can I do it? And then I thought, well, I'm not giving someone else that opportunity. Yeah. And so I jumped. Yeah. And then once you're in, you're in. So fame is not an option and off we go. I can relate to that one. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. That's my current salon where I thought, this is too good an opportunity. I'm doing it myself. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's a really inspiring story about what's got you to this point, but I imagine it hasn't all come from within. You've had to seek help from elsewhere, turn to other people, have mentors. And now that you're in this position, who do you turn to for inspiration? Do you have like podcasts you listen to or people you follow on Instagram or live events? What inspires you? I have a constant stream in my ear so yeah it is podcasts it's audio books things like that do I have any particular mentor for different things at different points in my business I've just it's been a very long time since I've worked with a coach you know I guess I've tried here and there outside the industry to develop different aspects of my business um, and just couldn't find someone that I resonated with someone that I trusted and and so there's been many years of doing it solo out there in the wilderness and then just late last year I took a massive step which is totally out of character for me and invested a great deal of money um, in a world-class mentor world-class speaker um, and so that's developing different aspects of my business but have I had one mentor I can't really say I have I just I listen I'll follow someone who's on a similar wavelength I discard the ones who are a little bit stuffy and corporate because that's just not my market. It's not me. Yeah. I'm all about the emerging leaders, so bringing them into their early leadership roles. Um, 
But I think my I've got a radar that's just constantly open. Mm-hmm. Mm. And are you all business? Am I all business? Look, looking back at different stages of my life, probably I was. Now, I've, I think more than any other time in my life, I've got a great balance now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, business to me, sometimes we say, oh, it's all business. Business is my passion. Like, it is my love language. I think it's, it's what runs through my veins. However, I have other aspects of my life. So my sport is huge. I have a massive commitment there. Um, and I have a wonderful bunch of friends, um, you know, and mentors in that area of my life. And that was uh, that was an area where I had to be prepared to go back and be an absolute newbie and be willing to feel completely incompetent in something because I took so up a new sport. Tell us about your sport. What is it? So my my latest love is uh, cycling. And honestly, it only happened as a result of COVID. So I've always been very sporty, always team sports, you know, throughout childhood, teenage years. But once you start in the hairdressing industry, of course, your Saturdays are spoken for. So from those kind of, you know, teenage years I had to give all that away Um, and so it was really just personal fitness for decades until COVID came along and closed my gyms and closed my pools and um, I some friends from gym said hey we're going you know we go for a ride on a weekend come with us and the joke has always been that I'd moved to an area you know nearby the river and I thought oh you know I should get a little bike that'd be great to go for a ride on a Sunday and it had sat there for about two and a half years. Yeah. I hadn't gone near it. Yeah. And the joke had always been, are you ever going to ride that bike? Oh, you never know, maybe. Anyway, COVID came and I finally pulled the bike out and off I went on my $200 Aldi bike to start with. <laughs> we were doing 80, 90 kilometre rides on that bike. And in the end, I, I finally invested in my first bike and then really, I guess, accelerated in terms of the growth. I loved it. Um, 12 months later, we had the full race bike. Um, and so this is my life now. It's four something a.m. alarms. It's oh. now training for national titles and things like that. Yeah, so amazing. it's been crazy. It's added so much to my life um, in in terms of stress and in a good way. And I just can't see myself without it. It's just been wonderful. Well, you sound like a major overachiever to me. I can see how getting up at 4am, pushing on a bike, riding up the hills. I mean, I've driven past you before going up Highgate Hill. It's insane. What do you think the relationship is between lifelong learning and overachievers? Like, is it connected? Is it important? How is it impacted? I think it can be. And I think the key is in intent. Why the lifelong learning? I think if you're lifelong learning because it comes from a place of feeling less than, there's something wrong with me, I need to fix something about myself, um, then look, any learning I think is positive, uh, you know, and they'll have benefits. But I think the real uh, peace and the real sense of reward will come for you when it doesn't come from a place of feeling less than. So look, honestly, first couple of decades of my career probably did maybe come from that place. Um, but now I, I love to stretch my brain. I love, I feel like I'm placing my brain in some really, you know, out there areas sometimes just to kind of sit and think, how does this feel with me? You know, how, mm-hmm. does, how do I resonate with this? Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't come from a place of needing acceptance or, or needing acknowledgement. It comes from a place of genuine curiosity and, and growth. Now, honestly, if I could somehow duplicate myself to have two or three of me, one of them <laughs> would probably be studying constantly mm. because I just love that 
that learning yeah. because you literally evolve as a human. So lots of great information about how you've come all this way to be the successful mentor and leader that you are. What's the one little key piece of advice you would give a salon manager or perhaps an emerging stylist who wants to become a salon manager? What's the advice to help them become a great leader? Firstly, and I've got a number of things coming to mind. Firstly, I would say realize that you can't do this on your own mm -hmm. you have to take people with you so initially you've got to find the balance between good relationships and performance often we end up feeling a bit like a doormat because we don't want to upset people etc and then we're completely ineffective um, I would say it's the greatest self-development exercise that there is you need to really be prepared to look at yourself when you're not getting what you want, we're not getting the results, when you're getting a behaviour that's causing problems, you have to be willing to look at yourself first. Before you blame, you have to look at yourself and say, all right, how did I allow that to happen? What can I learn? What can I do differently, et cetera? Um, so genuinely value your people. Try and put yourself in their perspective and understand what must they be thinking or feeling for them to be reacting like this. You know, so a little bit of understanding and empathy. Um, and patience, you are going to evolve, you're not going to get it all right to start with. And when you do stuff it up, as we do, there are going to be times when you'll say something and then you'll walk away and think, oh, that came out totally wrong. I didn't intend it that way. Cut yourself some slack, right? Learn, come back the next day. Be willing to say, guys, I messed that up. Mm. That I didn't say that the way I, you know, I intended to say it. Be willing to be big enough to say, um, sorry, guys, my fault, right? And I think that's a wonderful example for your people too because if you only present the perfect, glossy, I never make a mistake image, it's not real. They can't relate to you. Mm -hmm. And then they're terrified to make a mistake, which means they're terrified to have a go at anything. And so they'll just play safe and they'll sit in second gear. So you've got to show them that, you know, it's okay to, to put yourself on a limb and go for it. Mm. You won't get it right all the time. And that's cool. That's okay. Get it 60% right and then come back and get it 70 the next time and, and keep going. So when you step into leadership again, keep people at your core, really think about the impact you want to have on others because you will have an impact, you know. So think about if they, if your staff were sitting down 10 years from now looking back and they thought of you, what would you want them to feel about their time with you? And let that guide you as to how you want to lead people. Um, and, you know, be willing to just be vulnerable and learn and do what you best. Well, thank you, Kim Cray. I can say that I feel really inspired having listened to your story. I think it's great advice and what we definitely need at a time like now more than anything is a great leader. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.